Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, Clarissa here, and I am so excited and honored to bring you this solo episode because it's with one of my mentors, Dr. Anne Safi Biasetti. When Molly and I first interviewed her in episode 77, we had not taken her Befriending Your Body program yet. Since then, I not only took it, but it had such a profound impact on me and my body image recovery that I got certified in it so I could offer it as a healing tool to my clients. I'm happy to report that it has helped create huge changes and shifts in them as well. Today, we'll talk about her program, the importance of interceptive awareness, how the limbic system affects our brain and our ability to think clearly and make decisions when it comes to food choices, but also our ability to perceive what we actually clearly look like, meaning it affects our body image. Also, how it can create experiences around threatening situations, such as foods, trying on clothing, eating with others, even being alone. These experiences wire the brain to respond in a certain way. So we'll discuss why There are other tools that can help us rewire our brain. We also talk about the research on what age young girls start to focus on body image and become disembodied, the importance of a self-compassion practice, what body literacy is, and Anne is going to take us through a somatic practice you and your nervous system will love. Dr. Anne Safi Biasetti has been a psychotherapist for over 30 years She is polyvagal and thorned and holds a PhD in psychology with a transpersonal concentration. She is a licensed clinical social worker and a certified eating disorder specialist and is trained in mindful self-compassion and mindfulness, as well as a certified mindful awareness in body-oriented therapy practitioner. Her doctoral research explored the role of self-compassion in eating disorder recovery, which led to her writing the book, Befriending Your Body, A Self-Compassionate Approach to Freeing Yourself from Disordered Eating and Creating the Befriending Your Body program that I'm certified in. And also has the Awakening Self-Compassion card deck, which is 52 cards with simple, in-the-moment mindfulness and embodiment practices to increase your sense of well-being, self-confidence, and connection to others in your daily life. We use these cards regularly in Sweet Sobriety. She is currently writing another book on embodiment, and we talk today about some of her preliminary findings so far. Welcome, Dr. Biasetti. All right, I'm so happy to have Dr. Anne Safi Biasetti back here on the program. Welcome back, Anne. Thank you, and I'm so happy to be back. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So I'm wondering if we can start with speaking about interceptive awareness, because we touched on it in our first interview, and it really is kind of a buzzword nowadays. And I think it is often misunderstood. A lot of people think it's just about tuning into hunger. 
and fullness. And I know I've heard you talk about it being so much more. And I know you took a course by Dr. Cynthia Price on it. So can you share with us why it's so important to recovery from disordered eating and eating disorders and what it is? Yeah, sure. So there's a number of things sort of in there. So I'll just start first with kind of a a simpler definition of interoceptive awareness. So interoception is both an awareness through all areas of our nervous system, meaning our autonomic nervous system, our sensory nervous system, and our central nervous system. So it's like peripheral nervous system and central nervous system comes together and delivers our internal body information to our brain for interpretation. So I could talk more about that in a bit, but the kind of the definition that I love the most is the one that says interoception is about getting a sense of the landscape of our inner body. And I just love that because number one, I love the visual image of like the inner body as a landscape because that's what it is. And it's like we're surveying the landscape of the internal body. So that's different. Interoception is different than exteroception. So exteroception is about like, the temperature of our skin. And like, if we touch something, let's say I touch a hard surface, I feel the hardness. I touch a soft surface. I feel the softness sounds. It's extraception is basically our sensory perception of the external world. And interoception is our sensory perception of the internal world within our body. So a lot of times interoception now is being measured like in an easier way, I'll say in the world of science and neuroscience for interoception to be measured is things like getting a sense of your heart rate. And so that's one way, and it's not an easy thing, but that's why Dr. Price and Dr. Cynthia Price in the Center for Mindful Awareness for Mindful Body Awareness in her center, I trained in her MABT program. So it's Mindful Awareness in Body Oriented Therapy, her training. And I'm certified in that uh, practice, which is a practice of basically how do we get to the internal body? Because I think that's the misunderstanding out there in the world the most is that, oh, we can just get a sense of hunger or fullness. Well, it's not that easy. And if it was that easy, we'd all be able to do it, right? Without any problem, we wouldn't have any problem with a register of it. We wouldn't have any problem of, oh, this is when my body says stop, or this is when my body says I want more. But to get to the internal body, we have to move through the layers. So we're basically moving from exteroception to the internal body. And Dr. Price's work is a whole system. It's an actually an eight-week protocol system of how to start to move into the internal body. And her research focuses a great deal on trauma and addiction and the importance of interoception in that area of healing. And I have always been highly interested in it and how I got to know about Dr. Price's work was when I was doing my own doctoral research And I happened upon her work, specifically the multidimensional assessment of interoceptive awareness, which she uh, co-created, helped to co-create. 
It's a measurement tool of IA. And I happened upon her work there and started really putting together the questioning, especially, and in my research, hearing from my participants about how interoception, they didn't even say the word, but they were talking about embodiment and the connection to the body and how important that was to their recovery. But they were talking about it in a specific way. They weren't saying like, oh, body image acceptance. They weren't saying, oh, just accepting, you know, the size of my body or if my body could move or not. They weren't saying anything like that. What they were saying was I got in touch with what my body needed on a very different level. And I got really curious about that level and kept asking more and more questions about it. And that's when I heard them talk a lot about sensations. They started talking a lot about for women that had been restricting and and their menstrual cycles got disrupted from their, you know, HPA access being off, right? Their hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access from restriction being off. They were saying things like, I started getting very curious about why that was happening, what was happening inside that was causing that? How could I help it return? And they were very, very in touch with what was happening internally. So that is where I really came to understand, oh, they're not just talking about the surface body. They are saying that what helped them the most was traveling in and getting to know what was happening on the inside. So that is what they were saying. Their interoception is what really began to create embodiment. So hence, you know, many, not many years later, it was about two years later that I started then to find out more about Dr. Price's work and went out to train in the multiple levels with her. And now I I do am one of the teachers at the center and she and I have done some co-leading together of programming, which has been really exciting. That's awesome. And I know you teach about interoceptive awareness in the Befriending Your Body program. What are some of the challenges to it? And maybe for the listeners, what might be some ways they could start to practice it? Yeah. So in the Befriending Your Body program, one of the, really the way that I'm teaching interoception the most is through what Dr. Price calls body literacy, which is like the first stage of interoception. And throughout the program, we go a little deeper as well. I'll say more about that, but The biggest challenge is that it's body literacy. And what do we mean by that? It's basically how much do we know about what's happening right now in our body, right? So if we were to both stop right now and just take a moment, it's like, well, what do we notice? Well, see, that's the thing is that if we keep going, 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 and we're busy, 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 we never notice. So That's why if you and I were to take an interoceptive moment, we would have to stop, we would have to pause, we would have to still a bit, and we'd have to be able to start to tune in. And one of the best ways to tune in, and this is, again, what Dr. Price really, this is what she does in her work, is we use the sense of touch. And I use this in the Befriending Your Body program as well, right from the start, We have practices where I ask people to use their hand as a guide and a register to see what they're starting to notice in their neuromusculature, 
because that's one of the easiest ways for us to start getting curious about what's happening on the inside is to find an area in the body that is holding tension because we go so fast throughout a day and we have no clue that we're holding any kind of tension, tightness in the body until it gets to the point where the body's screaming, right? In pain. So we want to begin with that body literacy, which is if we just spent a few moments in at least getting a register of what's happening in this external and then possibly in this internal landscape, that's where we begin. So it's through that body literacy that we weave that throughout the entire Befriending Your Body program. And the more people can gain that literacy, the more they can start to make the connection between the biggest component that we do in the program, which is linking what's happening on the inside to what's happening in their autonomic nervous system functioning. Because interoception and our autonomic nervous system, our ANS go hand in hand. So it's so important to understand that. Yeah. And I can definitely personally relate to knowing and almost enjoying being in that state of busy because I never felt hungry, right? I would never know. And for me in that time, hunger was scary, that feeling, that the idea, because it meant, oh, I might eat and then I don't know if I can stop and what that might look like. And I certainly see that the same with my clients is, you know, they prefer that sympathetic state all day long. And then sometimes it can lead to like a binge, which will then put them in that, you know, parasympathetic, but that dorsal kind of numb out state. And so, yeah, to teach them that, you know, it's just a signal, right? And that it's asking, your body is giving you wisdom and it needs some nourishment and nourishment is is a good thing for us right exactly and what you know what i really hear you're saying and you understood it like you said in your own experience and then you hear it from your clients is that what happens is when we ignore the signals of interoception like let's say we ignore the hunger signal and we bypass it through the busyness what ends up happening as well is we now created something that's not interoception, which is we created a fear around it. And that's a thought. So then we are no longer perceiving what we're receiving correctly. So when hunger comes, where rather than staying with the actual sensation of hunger, we immediately have moved to a fear about hunger and we've moved to something called association, right? Which is we're now associating what has happened in the past with hunger to what we fear is going to happen in the present again. And so that is not interoception. That is all happening in our mind, right? That's all happening in cognition and cognition sparked by a dysregulated nervous system, which will produce more fear. It's a vicious cycle because the more we ignore hunger, the more our body, our nervous system goes into a sympathetic state, the more our body tenses, the more we become fearful, the more further away we are from interoception. And then, of course, we don't know what to do with hunger, because if you're far away from your body's signals, then, 
and they start getting shut down because the more fearful we get, the more sympathetic we get, the more that interoception shuts down. Well, then we're like, talk about that landscape. We're out in no man's land, you know, (laughs) forget the inner landscape. We're like on the cliff now, and then we don't know how to get back. So for everyone out there, that's like, I don't know how to be with food then, you know, I'm terrified of it. Of course. Yeah, of course, because we've gone so far away from how our body can talk to us about food in a way that is stable and secure, and we're left out in the dust, you know? So that's the biggest, I will say, mistaken idea about interoception is that we have to begin and we have to learn how to separate thought from sensation. And that's a primary piece of what we do in the Befriending Your Body program. Really, the first four weeks are somatically set up so that people can disentangle. I tell everyone it's like pulling apart a ball of yarn, you know, or the weeds. We're disentangling thought from sensation so that people get to the point where they're like, wait a minute, maybe that's me just thinking that that's what my body is actually experiencing. Let me see if I go in what my body's actually experiencing. So that's where we try and hang out the most is in, that's why Cynthia calls it mindful body awareness, right? Because there's a very strong component of mindfulness in gathering interoception and interpreting what we're sensing. That's the key. Yeah. And I can certainly say from, you know, running the course for the first four weeks, it is like teaching individuals a brand new way of being or a new language that they're trying to tune in. And it was interesting. We had a group yesterday and they were like, you know, this has been a really emotional month. And I was like, it's probably because we're doing this course and you're spending a lot of time in your body and that's new. And they all just had this like, wow, kind of like aha moment that, yeah, that that this is the work and that, that this is healing happening. It was so beautiful. So I think it's just such a necessary tool that gets missed in any other form of just cognitive therapy that gets done. Yes, completely. I'm so glad to hear you say that because the link between interoception and our emotions as well, because when we can register the sensory experience, that's actually, and we can stay with it and we can stay with it. That's actually where we will discover oh my goodness, there's actually emotion connected to this. So when people talk about things like, I don't use the term emotional eating because I just feel like it never, ever, ever, it's so simplified and it's such a complex on the somatic. If we look at it through a somatic therapy angle, that is such a complex term. So it's so simplified to just say emotion. It's like, no, 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 we have a whole sensory internal response going on and emotion happens to be part of that. So it sounds like what your folks are really discovering through the sense door is that, oh yes, emotion lives in here too. And that's really fabulous. And if we can learn how to begin to calm that, that's where the self-compassion comes in, right? Because self-compassion is an emotion regulator. So that's why marrying the two together is super important. 
Oh yeah. Especially because now we're in week six. And so when we got to week five and six, they're just like, they're loving it because they're feeling so regulated. And so, you know, it's like, oh, I was looking forward to this all week because it just feels so good. And we did the part where it's like, you don't have to wait to be fixed in order to be kind to yourself, that you can be kind while you're working on yourself at all time. And it just, the relief that brings. Yes. Isn't that lovely to not have these, you know, dualities anymore, what I call the non-binary, right? We live in such binary world with thoughts, you know, that, oh, it's, I either have to be fully healed, you know, how could I dare be kind to myself if I just had a binge or I just restricted or I just overexercise? How could I be kind to myself with that? That's when we need it the most, you know? So this is where the self-compassion and embodiment come together as two essential, essential components. Yes. Thank you so much for that. I'm wondering if you could speak to, I know in the program too, you talk about the areas of the brain that we focus on when it comes to eating disorders, behaviors is usually the limbic system, specifically the thalamus, the hypothalamus and the amygdala. And I know our listeners love knowledge on the brain. So can you speak a little bit about how these three areas are affected and how they relate to body image disordered eating? Yeah, sure. So we're understanding that that whole area of the brain, the limbic system can be looked at as the sensory hub, right? So it's the area of the brain that is basically waiting from the body, waiting for the signals that are coming from the sensory system and the autonomic nervous system through all of our nerve endings. So that the body to brain connection is a slower connection, right? So it reaches whatever we're experiencing internally, reaches the amygdala, which is like the center for gathering that information. And it's kind of hanging out. It's like just the receiving center, you know, that hangs out, receives either a message of, hey, things are pretty good here. I don't feel tense. I don't feel anxious today, you know? And if that's the case, then the whole limbic system is quiet, meaning that the thalamus and the hypothalamus don't have a lot to respond to, and it means that things are functioning well. So all those sensory messages then get interpreted and translated into our cognition, as well as to an area that's outside of the limbic system called the parietal lobe. And that's an area that takes sensation, it takes perception, and it takes our cognitive reflection, and it puts it all together as a representation of perception. So there's body image. So everything I just said, when the limbic system is like that, and and all is in, in harmony, right, and all is in calm, or what we call more of a ventral vagal state in the autonomic nervous system, then that is when we have a chance at corrective body image. And I say corrective because I'm not saying you're going to like everything you see, right? Like I tell everyone, that's not what I'm after. I'm just after corrective body image, meaning that you're connected. So everything I just said means that we have a perception of our body image. And at the same time, we're connected to what's happening in here. So like, oh, I'm calm. And it's like, oh, all right, maybe I'm not so crazy about the way things look today, the way these clothes fit or whatever, but I'm not going to get reactive to it. And I'm not going to compensate with a behavior 
because I'm in a calm state. That's huge, right? But now we back it up to the scenario that takes place more often, which is we haven't fed ourselves all day. We're in a sympathetic response to begin with. Our body is tight or tense, or we've overexercised, or we've done you know, 50,000 steps or whatever it is, and we're exhausted. Or, and the sensory system and the autonomic nervous system is sending signals of fear and overwhelm to the amygdala. The amygdala is like, open the chambers, you know, and the thalamus, which is the area that's responsible for releasing hormones. So the thalamus is part of that, what we call that HPA axis, the hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis. So the thalamus is waiting for that sensory response. And then it's, you know, saying, go ahead, hypothalamus, open the gates for all those stress hormones And those stress hormones get released. And as that happens, we're in a protective state. We're in a fight, flight, freeze state. We're in a a state where we do not feel safe. And when we're in that state, well, then all cognitive processing shuts down. So we can't think clearly, can't make choices, forget making a choice around food at that point in time, right? Of course, that is when I said, oh, we're standing by the cliff. And we're like, now I really can't go near food because I'm going to be a mess with it, you know? And then our body image, forget it. We don't have a chance with body image because again, it's receiving all these signals trying to interpret. And if we, you know, get a glimpse of ourselves at that point in a store window or in a mirror, that's it. That's when the takedown happens. And that's when we collapse, right? And we say, forget it. We get hopeless, helpless, and the whole cycle begins again, right? So hence the important, important piece of making sure that we're checking in with regularity throughout a day to make sure that we're not letting, not waiting for ourselves to get here, Because once that cycle kicks into gear, it's really hard to make proper choices. So my famous statement in the program is do not wait till the end of the day to regulate your system. You have to check in and take two minutes of breath, take two minutes of, you know, gentle grounding. You know, even if I tell everyone, get up and press your hands against a wall, and step back like a downward dog against a wall, you know, that feels so good to lift up and down and just release some muscular tension. So we just want to check in quickly so that we don't leave that process going unattended. Yeah, I love that. And I always say, you know, you can't just have a massage once a week, right? And it's your body needs to be taken care of every day, whether that's stretching, just checking in, tuning in, and connecting with it. And I think we're starting to learn more about how important that regulation is and how when we're so unregulated, we see the world in, like you just said, such a different state. It seems unsafe, dangerous. And, you know, I can't trust people. I can't trust places. And it just puts me, you know, it it changes our view of the world. Absolutely. And, you know, talk about, you know, our topic here with food, it changes totally our experience with how we see food and what foods and everything else, right? Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. I'm wondering if you could also, I know in your program, you talk about Dr. Puran's research that you cite specifically around body image and young girls. 
Would you mind speaking to that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, I would encourage everyone to read up on her work. You know, it's P-I-R-A-N, Dr. Piran. And she is a had done a, a longitudinal qualitative research study on young women, which is kind of unusual. You don't usually hear that. And she followed these young women from, you know, ages of like eight and nine to about three years. Well, actually, I think longer than that, but she really focused a lot on what happens within like that three-year span from like eight or nine to 11, 12. And the really what she pointed out the most was how these young women in their younger years, these young girls talked about their being in relationship with their bodies, mean being they were embodied. They talked about things like pleasure and fun and their body being able to do things and join in and be part of. So their bodies had a sense of belonging. They were responding to their body's desires without having so much thought about them. They were responding to pleasure and fun and play and everything else. And they weren't caring as much about the external view, right, or the gaze. And then all of a sudden came those three years. And when she interviewed them again, and the other thing the young girls had was they had corrective perception. So their parietal lobes were working just fine. Like if they drew pictures of themselves they drew accurate images that were pretty representative of how other people would see them. And then in those couple of years, all of that changed. And what they started talking about instead was how their body was perceived, whether it was wanted, whether it was desired. They questioned if they belonged. They no longer were as interested in the grouping of play and fun and that kind of spontaneous movement in their body. They were much more interested in the how-to from the outside, how to eat, what it should look like. Everything went external from internal. And it was really heartbreaking. I heard her talk about it once at a conference and then read up on, you know, got her book and read up further on her work. But it was really heartbreaking because anyone, first of all, as women, I think we can all think back to those ages ourselves, you know, but then if you have a daughter for chance and you can really, really see it in action and no matter how much we want to prevent that, this is the world we live in. And this is, and I don't want to just gender it, but I am going to just focus on these young women right now because that's what her research was on. And as we know, women's bodies you know, have had uh, so much of a greater challenge staying and remaining embodied in this world. So, so this was really what we looked at as we looked, she was looking at how things went from the free embodiment to disembodiment. And then what ensued, of course, you know, what came after, which was many of these young women then unfortunately started manipulating their bodies to fit the social construct that they believed was meant to be for their body or that people wanted for their body. So, and as we know, when we start to do that, well, that's when our, you know, inherently quote unquote natural relationship with food gets distorted. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's a very like powerful practice in your program where we go back and we kind of look at photos of us younger. And I think, you know, certainly for me, it resonated that I had this idea in my mind that I always had a body problem. And, you know, I never was in a right size body. And I look back now in those pictures and I just see like just a little kid who didn't think about body and who was having the best time and covered in mud, you know, just, just playing. And then you get to the kind of 11, 12, 13, and you see how it changes. The clothes change, the way I hold body changes, and it's very very drastic. And yeah, you wish you could prevent it. And so I am wondering though, so for some of us, I do know that because of whether it was eating disorders or maybe it was trauma, we tend to have very limited memories of, you know, earlier childhood. But when going through some of the prompts in the program, some of those questions can still be, you know, pretty activating at some times. And then, so there's that piece of how can we work with befriending your body when we have such like that past disassociation. And then there's also individuals who may have a co-occurring, you know, depression or, you know, maybe we're on medication and we're trying to tune into some of those emotions, but we were feeling a little numb. And yet the questions are, you know, they're really, they really create some kind of response. So I'm just wondering in those cases, how can individuals work on befriending their body? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what I like to say, uh, because I, in my practice, I I work a great deal with trauma and co-occurring, you know, eating disorders, because really that's my work is all trauma informed, right. As a somatic therapist and uh, what my kind of famous line, you know, with that is it's okay to not have memory from here. I don't mind that at all. And really what's most important is that something resonated in here. So if we ask those questions and someone says, you know, I don't remember, you know, the age at when that kind of occurred for me, like the one of the questions around I think that you're referring to is the question that starts to ask, you know, do we recall the time we kind of left our own body, you know, and stepped out into caring more about what others, you know, see and think about. And some people are like, you know, I have no idea because a lot of times people say, I feel like that was my whole life. And that's really important because what I ask everyone to check in with the most is, Don't worry if there's not an exact memory from here. Just someone saying that makes me understand that that has been their internal felt experience their whole life. So I know and you know that, you know, none of us were born disembodied. We're all born embodied. But if you're telling me that your first recall from here was some sort of shame and body problem, then guess what? You have felt inside like you didn't belong or that this body didn't belong from such a young age. And you're not going to have a very clear, accurate memory of it, right? So some people could say like, oh, I know exactly when it was, you know, 10 years old when I went to get the potato chips and, you know, my mother locked them up then, you know, or whatever. And other people are like, 
I have no idea. I have felt this way my whole life. So what it really tells me on just a somatic level is, okay, you know, that's all that you need to know. And what we know together then is developing the path to come back is going to take us some more gentle time and practice. And you're really meeting a friend for the first time. You're really starting a whole new path because you don't have remembrance of it any other way. So I don't need for that memory to be there for this healing work to occur. And then is that the same kind of with the emotional piece? Like if I, you know, don't necessarily can't tune in because I think again, people are like, when we talk with our sweet sobriety members, we might say to them like, okay, you have sadness. Like, where do you feel that in the body? Just to try to teach them some of that, like tuning in. And so that's where they're like, I don't, I don't know. I can't feel anything in the body. Yes. Yep. So the, so it's two kind of, initially it's two separate things, right? Because we may find that we have a hard time registering emotion altogether. And then if we ask to try and sense in the body, it can be even harder, right? So what I like to start with first is to just go back to that body literacy first, see if we have any of that holding tension. That's more obvious sometimes than emotion because what happens is, especially with difficult, challenging emotions, we're going to have often a dysregulated nervous system response to those before we even know it. So meaning if we're trying to figure out, are we sad and sadness and grief is something that immediately shuts us down, well, then we're not going to be in feeling. We're going to be in that dorsal state that's not going to have a lot of access to emotion. We're going to have more access to thought. So that's where I just like people to just say like, okay, how about when we even think of the word, how about if we even think of the word sadness? You know, does your breath feel the same when you think of the word sadness? How about if you move your neck around, does your neck tension or looseness feel the same when you think about grief or sadness. So now we're sort of using cognition around the feeling to get a landscape of the body, if that makes sense. And eventually over time, we're really teaching how nothing ever stays separate, meaning that thought and emotion and sensation will always go together, but we all need a lot of training in each one of those categories first. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and that is, I think, embodied cognition that you also teach in the program and some practices around that as well. So I think that that, again, is a little bit more of the aha. You know, you're like, oh, these are all connected. Of course, that makes sense. When I'm feeling a certain way or thinking a certain way, my body feels a certain way, and then I experience certain emotions. So it really is, you know, baffling how we just spend so much time on the brain. I am wondering if, you know, there's a lot of people who have heard about the word somatic and even wisdom of the body, but they have no idea like how to access it, where to start. Would you be willing to share a somatic practice with our listeners that might start to help them understand what they might learn in the Befriending Your Body program? 
Sure. Yeah. So I can guide like um, what I'd like to offer is like a simple guide around a little body scan with movement. So I never teach body scan lying down and I don't like to teach it still either because the moment we come into stillness, a lot of us can go bye-bye too, you know, can sort of check out and be elsewhere thinking about what we're going to, you know, do for a shopping list or something, you know. So I like to teach it with movement. So what what I can do is we may not have time to go through the whole, but what I could do is just do like the upper half of the body. How's that? Yeah, that's perfect. Great. Okay. So what I'll invite in to start is just take a comfortable seat, one where you could feel your feet on the ground. So you may have to come to the edge of your seat a bit to press your feet down And then I'll just invite you to explore with a deep breath. So a deep breath in through the nose and exhale through your mouth. So a big release breath, we call that in the program. And then I'll have you come to the top of your head. And here's where you can take a hand or two. So I kind of like to use both hands as a register. And what I'd like you to do is just feel around to the top of the head, top of the skull here, an area that we never pay any attention to unless it's our hair, right? So, but right now we're going to pay attention to, if I move my fingers around here to the side of my head, to the forehead, maybe to the back of the head, believe it or not, sometimes right into this area of the tissue and feeling the hardness beneath your fingers, sometimes we can actually feel how one little space may be a little tender or sensitive. So we're just going to note that like, oh, like we could put a little, like if we're putting a little sticky note on there, like, oh, yep, this was one area that felt tender or sensitive. Now I'll have you come to come down to your jaw. And this is an area that often we find out there's been tension after the fact, right? After we've been holding it a long time. So if you just come down along the jawline and give a little press in with the fingertips and any time that we reach an area of sensitivity, that's when we're just going to make a little mental note about it. Like, yep, okay, another area, put a little sticky note there and we're going to move on right? Because we can always come back to it. Right now, we're just discovering. And then bringing those fingertips down along the side of the neck, both the right and left side. And and this can get like a little crunchy zone, right? Because the muscles, the large muscles here on the side of the neck, if they're tight, you can kind of feel maybe that like ropiness or bumpiness, You can feel where maybe one side, you could even lean in, like lean your head to the left, lean your head to the right, and you'll get even greater access to what's beneath your fingers as far as the muscles. And again, if any side, like my right side really stands out for me, so I'm just going to put a little, little note there, like, yep, noted, noted, I can come back to it. And then bringing those fingertips along the front of the chest here, right above the chest, the clavicle, we can kind of follow that 
to the shoulders. And if you just let your fingertips rest on the shoulders, I'll have you take little circles with the shoulders, like so little like wing arms, and you can circle the shoulders in one direction, you can circle them in the other. It's a way to just start to kind of sense into the joints, right? So we're sensing into muscles, but we're also sensing into joints and bones a bit. Like, uh, is one side a little more creaky than the other? Is there same movement one side to the next? And then from here, you can just open up like your right arm and just turn the palm one way, turn the palm the other way. So you're like turning it down and circling it around. So it really gets into the joint of the elbow and the wrist and the hand. And you can bend and open the arm again. This is where we're just noticing sensation here that may stand out. And we're going to do that same thing. Note it. Just note it. And then the same for the left arm. You can open it up and circle it under and over. And you could even now that you're in the opposite side, we can get to notice like, oh, does this move more freely than the other side? Does it move more freely? Get to note that. Any other sensation? And then coming back to the center of the body, we'll just move to the back body and I'll have you lengthen up your spine from the lumbar spine to the mid-back, the thoracic, all the way up to your neck. In a nice long line, notice any areas back there that wish to be noted, and then soften that by rounding. So you can kind of round forward, let the whole spine round, and even get a sense of, oh, where does it feel better for me? Is it in this upright position, or does the back body feel tired as I'm in upright? Does it feel tight or tense? And how about if I round, what's that sensation like if I round into it? I'll have you take another couple of breaths there in just discovering which place you note the most sensation. And then we'll come back to neutral. And I'll have you take just a hand or two to the center of the chest. And we'll just do a quick evaluation of what's my breath like in this space as I breathe in and I feel my hands moving. Or is the breath too quiet and is it a little shallow so I don't feel the hands moving as I breathe in. But perhaps when I breathe in, I feel some movement pressing into and against the hands. Another breath and release. And then before we come out, I'd like you all to just go back and see if you can recall the areas that were noted, like, oh, where did I put those little sticky notes? Oh, maybe I will check in again with those areas later to see if they're the same. I'll check in tomorrow, maybe throughout the day, just to tune in and say, you know, hey, do you still feel the same? Do you feel any different now? And we'll take a breath, press your feet into the ground. And then slowly come back. Oh, thank you. I had no idea that my left shoulder was so tight and my 
my right neck. It's like, now I'm going to give it some nice and tender care after uh, we're finished this podcast. Yeah, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Welcome. So that's basically like a gathering of body literacy right there. And that kind of practice really, if um, I would encourage everyone to be with that on a daily basis, if they can. And that is the way that will start creating new corrective interpretation of what our bodily signals are and what we're sensing. And every time we do that, we calm the limbic system. Mm. And it it is so fascinating because I was sitting here with no idea that that was tense and that was tight and how often, you know, we do this all day long, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I know you're writing a book on embodiment. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? What are some of the findings from your current research that you're really excited about? Yeah, sure. So I'm just in the very beginning stages, just in the intro, which is probably the hardest part, but I'll just share a teeny bit on the research. And so I did research uh, specifically the role of forgiveness and how that impacted one's embodiment. And really, I guess the pieces right now that are standing out to me the most that I think are really significant that I'll just, you know, kind of sum up quickly is the important role of grief. And more importantly, the difference between held grief and grieving, the action of grief, what I call the action of grief. So the action of grief, which is the movement of grief, really creates the next step or stage into coming closer toward one's body. So this forgiveness is not about what we've done wrong. It's not forgiveness in the way we think of it usually. It's forgiveness is more about the depth of understanding our own role and relationship with this body, what has happened out in the world, and now what can happen when we join in with this body. So forgiveness is not about wrongness in any way. It's about understanding. And I will say that another huge component that I I really can't wait to write more about is the role of regret. Something that in our toxic world of positivity, a lot of times that we don't like to go near. And really what I heard from every single participant was how important it was for them to name regret that they've had in any shape or form to be able to have feeling about that, grieving it, and that that was the primary piece that shifted their relationship with their body. And like I say, with any relationship in our lives or this life in general, how do we not have regret, right? Regret is a moment to be able to stand again, right? It's a moment to be able to learn again. So this was really the shift that moved people into embodiment, which was then starting to have curiosity, having, you know, investigation about everything you and I are talking about. And the most central role too is around understanding that it is a moment to moment process, that we can never think from here that, oh, we now know about this body. Mm -mm. 
It's a constant talking, feeling, sensing, living organism that needs our attention at all times. And that doesn't end. The cycle just keeps going on. Yeah, that makes so much sense, especially through the lens of addiction, right? Grieving, like, you know, whether it was even the substance that we're no longer using or the regrets that we had while in use of the substance. And, you know, just being able to acknowledge that allows us to start to take the path forward because we, you know, A, we are able to like, yeah, accept that it happened and that starts to put the stones for the path forward. So I think that that makes so much sense and is so beautiful. And thank you. Yeah, it really has been uh, just remarkable to hear the journey and to really understand, you know, the depth that people have gotten to in through forgiveness and, and really just honoring the changing body. And that's all part of that cycle is that, you know, no one any longer expected these bodies to remain the same, you know, change was their constant and they were able to embrace that. Yeah, that's beautiful. So I do want to highlight that you are going to be doing some lunchtime lecture series on specific topics. Now we do have a lot of professionals who listen to the show as well. And so can you just tell us a little bit more about the series before I let you go? Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So it will be a once a month uh, drop in. People can come either once a month or they can come, you know, each month to the series. It's 45 minutes and you can bring your lunch along and I will be doing a little talk, like a little just teaching segment, the, the first 15, 20 minutes, but we're going to practice because really we can't teach somatic work from here as we just did that little practice and you discovered something quickly. So my first one will be on the topic of interoception and its importance in eating disorder recovery, but I will be focusing a lot on, again, what it is, what it isn't out in the recovery world and, and we'll do a little practice and then Q&A. So it's not going to be about any kind of case consultation or anything like that. It's really for practitioners to embody these topics and get a little segment. And I'll just, you know, I can get a little deeper with just staying on one component. And I'll do that each month in, with another somatic topic just to really spread the education and the work. I think it's essential for our community now to know more and to be connected on a deeper level. And we can only do that through these bodies. Yes, and I just wanna thank you so much for being here today and for sharing that practice and for truly like changing the way that I help my clients and I have been able to heal myself. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. It's uh, thrilling to hear that, so thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. 
As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs> <laughs>